Welcome to the Banner of Truth magazine podcast, where each week we bring you selected content from the magazine for your encouragement and edification. This week's first selection is from the 724th issue of the Banner magazine, dated January 2024, entitled William Brewster and John Robinson, Laborers Together with God. It was written by Mark J. Larson, who is Professor of Systematic Theology at Heidelberg Theological Seminary in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, USA. Two remarkable men arose in Nottinghamshire during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. William Brewster was born between 1560 and 1566 in Scrooby. John Robinson came into the world in 1575 in Sturton le Steeple, not too many miles down the road from Scrooby. Both men studied at the University of Cambridge, Brewster at Peterhouse and Robinson at Corpus Christi College. Both men embraced the Reformed faith and came to the conviction that they could no longer be a part of the Church of England. Robinson affirmed that it had been put into place without the preaching of the gospel and consisted of men and women for the most part ignorant, faithless, impenitent, disobedient. The true church, they contended, consisted of individuals who hold forth faith in Christ Jesus, holiness in the fear of God, and submission to every ordinance and appointment of God. They therefore became separatists, rejecting the territorial church model and advocating the doctrine of the gathered church, in which it may be truly said of the local congregation that it is a body of believers, beloved of God, called to be saints. Romans 1.7 Brewster served as a postmaster and lived at Scrooby Manor, an estate owned by the Archbishop of York. He provided fresh horses for the government messengers travelling on the Great Northern Road between London and Edinburgh. He was well paid, earning probably ten times more than the average farmhand. Robinson joined the separatist congregation that met in the manor house sometime around 1606-1607. The group included their first pastor, Richard Clifton, and the young man who would later become the governor of Plymouth Colony, William Bradford. The authorities began to harass the Scrooby congregation for conducting private worship, which was illegal at the time. The decision was then made to emigrate to the Netherlands, a place where they could worship according to their biblical convictions. After spending a year in Amsterdam, Brewster and Robinson, along with about 100 separatists, moved to Leiden in 1609. The congregation then chose Robinson to be their pastor and Brewster to be their elder. Part of the Leiden congregation, including Brewster, sailed on the Mayflower in 1620 across the Atlantic and established the Plymouth Colony. Robinson remained with the majority of the congregation in Leiden, intending to join his flock in the New World at some point in the future. That, however, did not happen. Robinson died in 1625 and was led to rest in Peterskirk in Leiden. As we contemplate these two men of God at a distance of 400 years, what can we learn from them as we endeavour to serve the Lord in the 21st century? There are at least three exemplary traits in their ministries. Their embrace of a proper foundation for their ministerial labours, 
the spirit of love and humility in which they conducted themselves, and their biblical perspective on life in this world. A biblical and reformed foundation. Jesus concluded the Sermon on the Mount declaring, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Matthew 7.24 Robinson and Brewster took the statement to heart. Their lives and ministries were based upon the foundation of the Bible. It was nothing less, they believed, than the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.15 The central task of the ministry for them had been given as an apostolic charge. Preach the word. 2 Timothy 4.2 They followed this exhortation and therefore did much good for the souls committed to their care. For the gospel of Christ is indeed the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1.16 When the pilgrims parted from their pastor for the great transatlantic voyage, John Robinson exhorted them, I must herewithal exhort you to take heed what you receive as truth. Examine it, consider it, compare it with other scriptures of truth before you do receive it. This was the sola scriptura position of the Protestant Reformation, and Robinson desired that his people be like the noble Bereans. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Acts 17 verse 11. The biblical foundation of their theology led Robinson to teach Reformed doctrine in Scrooby and in Leiden, with Brewster sounding the same note in Plymouth. It was Robinson who would champion the canons of Dort. He even debated the learned Arminian theologian Simon Episcopius at the University of Leiden. William Bradford summarised what happened. When the day came, the Lord did so help him to defend the truth and foil this adversary. Brewster was no less reformed in his teaching. His library included volumes by such luminaries as John Calvin, Theodore Beza, Peter Martyr, Vermeule, Richard Greenham and Richard Sibbs. Their spirit of love and humility. Paul reminded the congregation in Thessalonica of his life and ministry among them. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 to 8, 11 and 12. We find something of the same spirit of humility and love for the people of God in the lives of our two separatist leaders. Brewster, who was well off financially, cared for the needs of the congregation that gathered for worship in his home. They ordinarily met at his house on the Lord's Day, and with great love he entertained them when they came, making provision for them to his great charge. Robertson acted in a similar manner after the congregation ended up in Leiden. He and his family lived in a house called the Green Close, next door to the Peterskirk. On the Lord's Day, 
Robinson opened his home as a place for his congregation to worship. We see Robinson's love for his people as he bade farewell to that portion of his flock that departed for New England. We have a description of what happened. Their excellent pastor on his knees by the seaside poured out their mutual petitions unto God, and having wept in one another's arms, as long as the wind and the tide would permit them, they bade adieu. This was a scene reminiscent of Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Acts 20 verses 36 to 38. Brewster and Robinson remind us of our moral duty. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 Jesus insists that this is crucially important, for the world is always watching. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13 verse 35 Robinson was conscious of a fundamental reality. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4.6 He was not the kind of man of which Paul warned, From among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Acts 20 verse 30 Robinson exhorted his departing flock, And I would wish you by all means to close with the godly people of England. Study union with them in all things, wherein you can have it without sin, rather than in the least measure to effect division or separation from them. Neither would I have you loath to take another pastor besides myself, inasmuch as a flock that hath two shepherds is not thereby endangered, but secured. Robinson had no interest in gaining a following. His objective in ministry was for his people to become disciples of Jesus Christ. We must wear the same garment, the clothing of humility. 1 Peter 5 verse 5 We are merely a voice directing all attention to Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1 29 Our resolution must be firm. He must increase, but I must decrease. John 3 verse 30 Their biblical perspective on life in this world. The writer to the Hebrews said concerning the patriarchs, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Hebrews 11, 13-16 These words have a particular application to the pilgrims. Cotton Mather put it this way as he called attention to the deadly sicknesses which in two or three months carried off more than half their company. "'Twas a most heavy trial of their patience, whereto they were called the first winter of their pilgrimage, 
and enough to convince them and remind them that they were but pilgrims. Mark J. Larson's article may profitably be paired with a selection from Cotton Mather's The Great Works of Christ in America, which was first published in 1702 and came out in a banner edition in 1979. The following excerpt is from Chapter 2, Primordia, or the Voyage to New England, which produced the first settlement of New Plymouth, with an account of many remarkable and memorable providences relating to that voyage. A number of devout and serious Christians in the English nation, finding the reformation of the church in that nation according to the word of God, and the design of many among the first reformers, to labor under a sort of hopeless retardation, they did, anno 1602, in the north of England, enter into a covenant, wherein expressing themselves desirous not only to attend the worship of our Lord Jesus Christ with a freedom from humane inventions and additions, but also to enjoy all the evangelical institutions of that worship. They did, like those Macedonians, that are therefore by the Apostle Paul commended, quote, give themselves up, first unto God, and then to one another, end quote. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 5. These pious people, finding that their brethren and neighbours in the Church of England, as then established by law, took offence at these their endeavours after a scriptural reformation, and being loath to live in the continual vexations which they felt arising from their non-conformity to things which their consciences accounted superstitious and unwarrantable, they peaceably and willingly embraced a banishment into the Netherlands, where they settled at the city of Leiden, about seven or eight years after their first combination. And now in that city, this people sojourned, a holy church of the blessed Jesus, for several years under the pastoral care of Mr. John Robinson, who had for his help in the government of the church a most wise, grave, good man, Mr. William Brewster, the ruling elder. Indeed, Mr. John Robinson had been in his younger time, as very good fruit hath sometimes been before age hath ripened it, soured with the principles of the most rigid separation, in the maintaining whereof he composed and published some little treatises, and in the management of the controversy made no scruple to call the incomparable Dr. Ames himself Dr. Amiss for opposing such a degree of separation. But this worthy man suffered himself at length to be so far convinced by his learned antagonist that with a most ingenious retractation he afterwards writ a little book to prove the lawfulness of one thing which his mistaken zeal had formerly impugned several years, even till 1625, and about the fiftieth year of his own age, continued he a blessing unto the whole church of God. And at last, when he died, he left behind him, in his immortal writings, a name very much embalmed among the people that are best able to judge of merit, and even among such, as about the matters of church discipline, were not of his persuasion." Of such an eminent character was he while he lived, that when Arminianism so much prevailed, as it then did in the Low Countries, those famous divines, Polyander and Festus Homius, employed this our learned Robinson to dispute publicly in the University of Leiden against Episcopius and the other champions of that great chokeweed of true Christianity. And when he died, not only the university and ministers of the city accompanied him to his grave, with all their accustomed solemnities, but some of the chief among them 
with sorrowful resentments and expressions affirmed, quote, that all the churches of our Lord Jesus Christ had sustained a great loss by the death of this worthy man, unquote. The English church had not been very long at Leiden before they found themselves encountered with many inconveniences. They felt that they were neither for health, nor purse, nor language well accommodated, but the concern which they most of all had was for their posterity. They saw that whatever banks the Dutch had against the inroads of the sea, they had not sufficient ones against a flood of manifold profaneness. They could not, with ten years' endeavour, bring their neighbours particularly to any suitable observation of the Lord's Day, without which they knew that all practical religion must wither miserably. They beheld some of their children, by the temptations of the place, were especially given in the licentious ways of many young people, drawn into dangerous extravagancies. Moreover, they were very loath to lose their interest in the English nation, but were desirous rather to enlarge their king's dominions. They found themselves also under a very strong disposition of zeal to attempt the establishment of congregational churches in the remote parts of the world, where they hoped they should be reached by the royal influence of their prince, in whose allegiance they chose to live and die, at the same time likewise hoping that the ecclesiastics, that is, the churchmen, who had thus driven them out of the kingdom into a new world, for nothing in the world but their non-conformity to certain rites, by the imposers confessed indifferent, would be ashamed ever to persecute them with any further molestations at the distance of a thousand leagues. These reasons were deeply considered by the church, and after many deliberations, accompanied with the most solemn humiliations and supplications before the God of heaven, they took up a resolution, under the conduct of heaven, to remove into America. The opened regions whereof had now filled all Europe with reports. It was resolved that part of the church should go before their brethren, to prepare a place for the rest, and whereas the minor part of younger and stronger men were to go first, the pastor was to stay with the major, till they should see cause to follow. Nor was there any occasion for this resolve in any weariness which the states of Holland had of their company, as was basely whispered by their adversaries, therein like those who of old assigned the same cause for the departure of the Israelites out of Egypt. For the magistrates of Leiden in their court, reproving the Walloons, gave this testimony for our English, quote, These have lived now ten years among us, and yet we never had any accusation against any one of them, whereas your quarrels are continual, end quote. These good people were now satisfied. They had as plain a command of heaven to attempt a removal as ever their father Abraham had for his leaving the Chaldean territories. And it was nothing but such a satisfaction that could have carried them through such otherwise insuperable difficulties as they met withal. But in this removal, the terminus ad quem, that is to say, the destination, was not yet resolved upon. The country of Guyana flattered them with the promises of a perpetual spring and a thousand other comfortable entertainments. But the probable disagreement of so torrid a climate under English bodies, and the more dangerous vicinity of the Spaniards to that climate, were considerations which made them fear that country would be too hot for them. They rather propounded some country bordering upon Virginia, and unto this purpose they sent over agents into England, who so far treated not only with the Virginia company, but with several great persons about the court, unto whom they made evident their agreement with the French Reformed churches in all things whatsoever, except in a few small accidental points. That at last, after many tedious delays, and after the loss of many friends and hopes in those delays, they obtained a patent 
for a quiet settlement in those territories, and the Archbishop of Canterbury himself gave them some expectations that they should never be disturbed in that exercise of religion at which they aimed in their settlement. Yea, when Sir Robert Nanton, then Principal Secretary of State unto King James, moved his majesty to give way, quote, that such a people might enjoy their liberty of conscience under his gracious protection in America, where they would endeavor the advancement of his majesty's dominions and the enlargement of the interests of the gospel, end quote. The king said, quote, it was a good and honest motion, end quote. All this notwithstanding, they never made use of that patent. But being informed of New England, thither they diverted their design, thereto induced by sundry reasons, but particularly by this, that the coast being extremely well circumstanced for fishing, they might therein have some immediate assistance against the hardships of their first encounters. Their agents then again sent over to England, concluded articles between them and such adventurers as would be concerned with them in their present undertakings. Articles that were indeed sufficiently hard for those poor men that were now to transplant themselves into a horrid wilderness. The diversion of their enterprise from the first state and way of it caused an unhappy division among those that should have encouraged it, and many of them hereupon fell off. But the removers having already sold their estates to put the money into a common stock for the welfare of the whole, and their stock as well as their time spending so fast as to threaten them with an army of straits if they delayed any longer, they nimbly dispatched the best agreements they could and came away furnished with a resolution for a large tract of land in the southwest part of New England. All things now being in some readiness, and a couple of ships, one called the Speedwell, the other the Mayflower, being hired for their transportation, they solemnly set apart a day for fasting and prayer, wherein their pastor preached unto them upon Ezra 8 verse 21, quote, I proclaimed a fast there, at the river Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our God, to seek of him a right way for us, and for our little ones, and for all our substance. End quote. After the fervent supplications of this day, accompanied by their affectionate friends, they took their leave of the pleasant city, where they had been pilgrims and strangers now for eleven years. Delft Haven was the town where they went on board one of their ships, and there they had such a mournful parting from their brethren as even drowned the Dutch spectators themselves, then standing on the shore in tears. Their excellent pastor, on his knees by the seaside, poured out their mutual petitions unto God, and having wept in one another's arms, as long as the wind and the tide would permit them, they bade adieu. So sailing to Southampton in England, they there found the other of their ships come from London, with the rest of their friends that were to be the companions of the voyage. Let my reader place the chronology of this business on July 2nd, 1620, and know that the faithful pastor of this people immediately sent after them a pastoral letter, a letter filled with holy counsels unto them, to settle their peace with God in their own consciences by an exact repentance of all sin whatsoever, that so they might more easily bear all the difficulties that were now before them, and then to maintain a good peace with one another, and beware of giving or taking offences, and avoid all discoveries of a touchy humour, but use much brotherly forbearance. Where, by the way, he had this remarkable observation. Quote, In my own experience, few or none have been found that sooner give offence than those that easily take it. 
Neither have they ever proved sound and profitable members of societies who have nourished this touchy humor. End quote. As also to take heed of a private spirit and all retiredness of mind in each man for his own proper advantage, and likewise to be careful that the house of God, which they were, might not be shaken with unnecessary novelties or oppositions, which letter afterwards produced most happy fruits among them. A brief addendum to our excerpt. Listeners may be interested to know that although Cotton Mather's The Great Works of Christ in America is currently not available from the banner, we do have plans to publish it again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you for listening to the Banner of Truth magazine podcast. To subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats, or both, see the show notes or visit banneroftruth.org.